Hey, welcome to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, we began last week studying the book of Nehemiah. This fall, it will carry us up until Advent, until Christmas. We're going to spend the next several months in the book of Nehemiah, this lesser-known book in the Old Testament. That um, It's a wonderful story. It's, it's, it's a gripping narrative, but it is um, it requires some context to understand uh, what's going on. And so as a brief overview, the context for Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is, is an Israelite. He's a Jew. He is in captivity in Babylon along with all the other Israelites that got taken captive by the Babylonian Empire in 587 B.C. About 150 years later, Nehemiah comes on the scene and he is a captive in Babylon longing for the homeland, longing for Jerusalem that is lying in ruins to be rebuilt, to return home. And so Nehemiah has gotten word, the, the people of God in captivity have gotten word, they've gotten hope that there is uh, news on the home front. A group of captives was set free to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the temple. Things are looking up. Things are looking good. Maybe there's hope on the horizon. Maybe God hasn't abandoned his people forever. Maybe God hasn't given up on his promises. And this is in the context of God making his promises come true to the Israelites is really the grand context of God making his promises come true to the whole world. That God has promised to one day restore and heal the whole world. God has promised one day to restore and heal all that's sick and all that's dying and all that's broken and all that's messy. And God's people in the Old Testament were wondering, are those promises going to come true? And with us being away from our homeland, with us being away from Jerusalem, Jerusalem lying in ruins, God's promises seem to be on pause. God's promises seem to be forgotten for the time being. But there's hope now. There's hope on the home front. So Nehemiah gets word, not only is there hope on the home front, but several years into that hope of rebuilding, news comes back to Babylon. News comes back to the Persian Empire, actually, where Nehemiah is. That the rebuild had started. Hope was pressing forward. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about all of us, but now there's trouble. People have come, and the, 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 the rebuild project has been put on pause by the king and when the rebuild project gets put on pause by the king, people attack the city of Jerusalem and they burn the walls to the ground again. That's where we find Nehemiah. That's where Nehemiah starts. And Nehemiah is going to get it in his gut. He's going to get it in his soul. I am the one that is to go back and lead the team to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Not just to rebuild the city of our ancestors, not just to rebuild the glorious city of Jerusalem, but to to re-enter the story that God is telling of restoring all things. We've got to go back and do this to make this hope come alive again. So Nehemiah is back in Persia hearing that there's trouble and he has the plan in his heart to return home and for the rest of the book we're going to follow that plan of him returning home to rebuild the wall. But before he gets into action, before he actually sets foot to go back home to Jerusalem to begin the rebuild, Nehemiah first has to go and ask the permission of King Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes I. And King Artaxerxes was a powerful man, we'll talk about him in a minute, but this king has to give Nehemiah permission to leave his post to go back home to begin to rebuild the wall again. But before Nehemiah goes to talk to the king, before he goes to Jerusalem, before he gets permission, Nehemiah does something else first. He prays. We're going to look at that prayer and what he prays, holding all the weight and all of the hope and all of the tension that Nehemiah is holding. He goes, before he goes to before the king, he goes before the Lord in prayer. So if you'll turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, if you don't have your Bibles or your phones, it will be on the screen. 
Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, like the words from back home that things are not good back on the home front, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. It's the word of the Lord. Okay, so like we just said, Nehemiah is in this position. He has been affected by the news from the Jerusalem front. He has been affected by the rebuild of Hope Project getting paused, getting reburned down, and he's re-caught up in this vision. We looked at this last week. God's grand vision to heal the world. Nehemiah says, I've got a part to play in that, and I want to go and rebuild the walls and rebuild the hope of God and his work in the world. But he knows in order to do that, he has to go before the king, King Artaxerxes, and get permission to do this. But he knows this is no small task. He knows this is the, the amount of work that lies before him is no small thing. And he feels the deep grief and sorrow of what's going on on the home front. He feels so sad that the work has been thwarted again. But he also feels the fear and the anxiety and the tension of, I can't go back to do what I feel called to do unless I go get permission from this great and powerful king, Artaxerxes. And so with all of that tension, he's weeping, he's fasting, he's praying, he's groaning, and he's terrified and afraid to go ask this king permission. The first thing that Nehemiah does with the weight of all of that on his soul is he prays. Why in the world would he pray first? Well, one reason that should be logical and, and at least understandable is what he says at the very end of his prayer he says, and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. This man is just the king of the known world. <laughs> like the most powerful king in the world at the time. He essentially, King Artaxerxes, the Persian Empire was massive, covered the entire Middle East and beyond. And this man, Artaxerxes, is the same king who has already ordered that the rebuild project stop on the home front in Jerusalem. The king didn't like, he kind of got word, wait, wait, maybe these, these Jews, these Israelites are rebuilding their city because they want to mount a mutiny, they want to come after me and revolt, and so he stops the build. Nehemiah wants to go to that man and ask that man who just stopped the build, hey, I know, I know you just did that little thing where you stopped us from rebuilding our home front, but I'm sad now, and so I need you to let me go rebuild the wall, will you please do that? Artaxerxes was busy suppressing revolts in Egypt, history will tell us. Artaxerxes I was also busy squashing two attempts on his life, one by his commander of his guard and one by his younger brother who was trying to kill him to take the, the throne from him. 
and now some little Israeli who's got a little homeland in this massive empire wants to come and talk about returning home to rebuild his country and rebuild his city and rebuild his wall. Like th- I, I thought of a, a comparison like, hey, President Biden, I know you got a lot going on. I know Afghanistan's a mess. I know you got a hurricane coming. I would love a couple of dollars and I would love a couple of days off to go and rebuild my home out in Smyrna, okay? Now, no knock on Smyrna, okay? I'm, it's about Jerusalem, okay? I'm just saying, like, Joe Biden does not have time for that. Joe Biden does not care about that. Why in the world would King Artaxerxes care about this little rebuild project that he's already shut down because he doesn't want any revolts happening? He's tired of squashing revolts. But now Nehemiah wants to go and ask this man, hey, I'm really sad over here and I've been weeping and fasting for days and I think I need to go rebuild the wall. Will you let me go do that? And you heard at the end of our passage that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Cupbearers of the king had kind of a a formal job, but they also had a lot of power. Their formal job was literally tasting the wine that the king was about to drink to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So he was a trusted man with the king, but he was so trusted with the king, you're willing to drink wine before I drink it to make sure no one kills me. I vehemently trust you, so here's all the power in the kingdom. So cupbearers had a ton of influence and authority in their kingdoms. He was basically the chief of staff for this king of the Persian Empire, King Artaxerxes. So not only is it a, a, a illogical ask for him to go, hey, can I go take a few months off my job that's a really important job to you and go rebuild this little city in your empire to, to restore Jerusalem, but also you may fire me for this. I'm asking to go rebuild this thing that, that you didn't like the rebuild of it, and now I'm asking you again for permission to go back on your word, and I'm supposed to be your most trusted chief of staff. So the first thing we have to understand here about why Nehemiah prayed before he did anything else, all that was a setup to say this. Nehemiah prayed because he knew he was up against something beyond himself. This is the first doorway to understanding prayer. When you know that you are too finite, too weak, too afraid, too insecure, too confused, too selfish to face what's in front of you, prayer is a great option. Nehemiah had every reason to be afraid of asking the king what he was about to ask him, but Nehemiah also knew the one that stood above the king. Nehemiah also knew the one that was more powerful even than the king of the Persian Empire. It's a little bit of like a throw in shade at King Artaxerxes when he asked the Lord, give me favor in the sight of this man. Like, this, he's just a man to you, Lord. Like, he's the most powerful man in the world, but he's, not, he's a footstool for you. So I'm going to his boss. I'm going to the one that rules over him. I need to ask you favor because you can do whatever you want with this king. Nehemiah knew he may be risking his own life, but he knew the one that held his life was more powerful than even Artaxerxes. But I know that when I say the word prayer, I don't care where you're at spiritually this morning, I know that when I say the word prayer, we all have a Pavlovian response to that word. I know that if you're an atheist or whether you've been in church since you were a fetus, you have thoughts about the word prayer and maybe like triggering thoughts that would go, not not sure I believe in that. What's interesting is that both believer and unbeliever tend to resist the idea of prayer for the same reason. All parties tend to believe that prayer may, at the end of the day, just be meaningless. See, unbelievers, atheists, think that prayer is meaningless because they believe they're talking into an echo chamber And believers resist prayer because they're scared they may be right. 
But here's what the whole spectrum of belief shares also that they may not realize about our approach and our Pavlovian response to the word prayer. Everybody in the room, because you are a spiritual being, I know can relate to this. We are all haunted by the eerie feeling that there may be more to this world and this life and this heart than my finite self and my finite senses. We're haunted by the reality that there may be something beyond me that I can't see, taste, or, or smell. And I get familiar with that place that there's gotta be something bigger than me, there's gotta be something above me, there's gotta be something transcendent that I can't quite articulate. We get familiar with that place when we're faced with the pain of betrayal. We get familiar with that place when we're grieving the loss of life in our own world. We get familiar with that place when I'm angry at the injustice that I see or when I'm full of the shame for what I've done, when I'm shocked by images of Afghanistan or I see another hurricane barreling towards New Orleans, when things uh, that, that we try to hold, when things that we try to get a grip on are too much to get a grip on, we tend to get real familiar with the reality that maybe there's something beyond me. Maybe there is this transcendent thing that I can't quite grasp, and I, I don't really know about, I don't really know if I want to talk to it, I don't even know if I believe it's there, it may just be an echo chamber, but I'm haunted by the eerie feeling that this pain is too much to hold, there's got to be something more. We get haunted by the reality that perhaps there actually is a transcendent one who not only is beyond me, but maybe even is coming after me. In the famous words of the atheist Julianne Barnes in his book, he, in his book's called Nothing to Be Afraid of, he said, th this gets at the heart of this uh, haunted transcendence, this idea that I can't kick, that there's gotta be something more. He said this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him that there's something that aches for him, there's something that I know that's too much to hold, and I've got questions, but I don't know that I have all the answers. I've got thoughts, and I've got reasons, and I've, it may just be an echo chamber. I don't even believe in God, but man, do I miss him. In other words, when you feel the sadness, and you feel the despair that Nehemiah felt in this moment that we're reading about, you also feel the terror of having to go and ask, like he did, this, this earthly king, such an illogical favor. When you feel the groaning of the wanting of the weight of the ache of the pain of the loss of the shame of the fear of the tension, when you feel those things of the world that you live in, you may cry out too to the one that you're not even sure is there but keeps haunting you. Nehemiah is in that place. He has no reason to believe in the God of Israel. He has no reason to believe that that God is coming true on his promises. He's seemingly abandoned them. He's seemingly not there. He's seemingly not interested in Israel. He's seemingly not interested in his people. He's let the rebuild project get burned down again. Surely this God isn't even real or else he wouldn't let all this be happening. Nehemiah is in that place. He's facing something beyond himself to have to go and ask this king permission and he's experiencing the ache and the longing and the hope and the fear and the doubt. And what he does first with that place is he prays. He prays in his opening line to the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Other translations say the great and terrible God. Meaning, there is one who is above my circumstances and there is one whom I may not understand, but the one that is haunting my existence, is it possible that you are experiencing this? He knows there is one that is haunting his existence that is above even the king that he is pleading with that maybe also is near enough to hear him cry, that is near enough to hear his moans and his groans. 
This is a great uh, teaching point for what prayer is. Prayer is merely, simply, a turning from my imminent, finite point of view with my groan and my aching and my words, and I direct them to the one who is not just transcendent above me, but is also near enough to hear me. Here's what Nehemiah didn't do before he started praying, and I hope this deeply encourages you. Nehemiah didn't try to clean it all up first. He didn't try to understand it all. He didn't try to figure it all out. He didn't try to get his grip on exactly what was happening in history and the world and God's promises and the sphere of this king. He didn't logically talk himself through the process, and then he felt ready to go pray. That's not what Nehemiah did. But if you're a Christian, how much time do you spend in your head and your heart talking about something, thinking about something, talking to other people about something, trying to figure out your pain, trying to get to the bottom of understanding why your heart hurts so much, trying to, to get to the understanding point of your confusion and your doubt and your, and your anger and your fear, trying to understand it before you bring it to the Lord? How often do you do that? I did it this week. My anxiety was ripping, and I couldn't stop thinking, couldn't stop worrying, couldn't stop overthinking, couldn't stop running in circles around the situation that was in my mind, talking about it. Maybe I just talk to this person about it. Maybe I just talk to this person about it. I'm going to call this old mentor, and I'm going I'm to talk to them about it. And maybe if, if I just verbalize enough of it, maybe then I'll understand it, and maybe then I'll have peace. And then, man, once I have peace, I'd love to talk to the Lord about it. And I was rocking a crying baby to sleep in a rocking chair, and I thought, that's me. And here's what I did after the baby finally fell asleep because I'm great at that. I prayed about it. It was this gentle whisper of the Lord that said, hey, you're talking to all these other people about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Would you love to just bring that to me? You're bringing it to everybody else. You're, trying, you're talking yourself in circles around the pain of it. I'd love to hear from you. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He is grieving, groaning, weeping, doubting, terrifying, and praying. He doesn't clean up all those emotions before he starts talking to the Lord. He doesn't clear up all the confusion before he starts talking to the Lord. He is bringing his full self to the Lord, not his cleaned up self, not his fully understood self. He is feeling all the feels, and he's talking to the Lord. So what does he say? What does a deeply affected Nehemiah say to the Lord? What do we say when we are faced with something bigger than ourselves and feeling the weight of it all? How can we learn from Nehemiah here and what he prays? We're just going to look at two things that he prays. And I hope these two things that we look at give us a model for prayer. They give us a framework for prayer. But I also hope all that you see here in the big picture is what we just said. That prayer is nothing more than taking your finite conversations and your aching and your groaning and your questions and speaking them to an infinite God who is near enough to hear you. If you want help with that, here's a great model. But you, don't even, you don't need a textbook for it. Nehemiah is just bringing his full self to the Lord with all of his questions and with all of his pain. But the first thing that we see Nehemiah asking for is in verse 6 and 7. Bob, will you throw this back up? Bob's actually his name. It's not just a generic name. It actually is Bob. Hey, Bob. Um, Bob, will you throw this verse, starting in verse 6 up? He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Here's the first thing that he asks. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Okay, so the first thing Nehemiah prays for when he is feeling the weight of all that he is feeling, the first thing that he says is he confesses his sin. This is paramount for us, especially when we're faced with something bigger than us. And he's not just confessing a few mistakes here or there where I think I, I, I kind of messed that up. I'm sorry, that was an accident. He does, he's not downplaying the sin at all. When he says there in verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded to your servant Moses. Do you know what that three-part description is describing? All the law of God. And here's what he just said about the law of God in its entirety. I've broken all of them. He's covering every base. And here's why Nehemiah's confession of his sin that I, I am, I am un, inarguably completely unrighteous before you. I've broken all of your statutes and laws and commandments. Here's why that confession before the Lord is so important when Nehemiah is feeling the weight of what he feels. Confession keeps us humble. Because here's what Nehemiah is not doing when he comes to the Lord. He's not going... Okay, God, I got some needs, I got some thoughts, and I need you to get on my agenda, and I need you. Do you know how much you owe me for what I've done for you? I'm about to go ask the king on your behalf for your people. I would think you owe me something back here. He doesn't come into prayer that way. Nehemiah comes into prayer knowing, Lord, you don't owe me anything. Because I've broken all of it. I'm not sitting in an arrogant position above you, Lord, when I come to you with my needs. So I'm starting with confession, not just so that you know I'm not above you, but so that I know I'm not above you. I have to report to you. I have to obey you, and I haven't been doing that. So anything I'm coming to ask from you is only going to be because of mercy, because I don't deserve it. Here's what's even maybe more interesting in this confession part. The pronoun usage. We. Here's what's really interesting about this. This is not just the plural, prona, pr the plural pronoun we. This is a we that Nehemiah uses that stretches back in history to the time of Moses. Like a thousand years before is his we. It's a we in the present that stretches back into the past as far back as the Exodus, as far back as the time when the Lord met his people on Mount Sinai a thousand years before Nehemiah and gave them his law. So here's what Nehemiah is doing. He is confessing sin for other people. He's confessing sin for his ancestors and the people and the generations that came before him. What in the world is he doing? Why in the world is he confessing sins that dead people committed? Well, one thing that our modern individualized society has trained us very well in is that you can only take responsibility for you and your actions, and that's true. You are not responsible for what your mom does or how she acts. You are not responsible for your boss or how they act. You are only responsible. You can only control you. That's, that's great. We've all been enough counseling to know that that's true, okay? Here's what is the problem with that mindset when it comes to understanding sin is that we, yeah, we get that. Okay, I can only take responsibility for my actions. So when it comes to sin, I know I'm supposed to confess my own sin before the Lord. I know that sin creates personal guilt in me. I know I have responsibility to take for committing sin against you as an individual. I've screwed up. I've sinned. I've made terrible choices. And Nehemiah does that here. He does that. Look, and he says there, the sins which we have committed against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. I've sinned, Lord. 
He's not putting himself above the people that came before him, but here's what he does. One of the things that our individualism and our current society, the way that we understand the self has, has limited us, it limits, it neglects that while you can't be responsible for other people, you can acknowledge that sin doesn't just create personal guilt. Another thing that sin does is it creates generational corruption. And Nehemiah here is acknowledging that his ancestors have been rebelling against the Lord since the day they received his law. And because they did that, there is now corruption in the bloodline. A corruption is now in the family tree. A corruption is now in the family system. The ancestors' own personal individual sin and guilt has created a corruption that has now poisoned the lineage. And Nehemiah is acknowledging, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've screwed it up. Yes, I haven't followed your law. But neither have any of my ancestors for the last thousand years. And what that says to the Lord, what that says to Nehemiah, the prayer is, this sin that's in me, yes, I participate with it, but I come by it honestly. To acknowledge that some of what causes him to sin is to name that sin has been in his blood and was passed down to him is so healthy. It's so healthy to name the things and acknowledge the dysfunction that was handed down to you by your ancestors. So healthy. To name the sin patterns in your family tree and to not be afraid to say that yes, this is sin that I participate with, but this sin has also been passed down to me and now corrupts me today. A, a giant, easy target for this, which needs probably more attention on the target, is slavery in our country. Did you own slaves? No. Did your ancestors? Yes. Was that sinful? Yes. Have you ever thought about repenting to the Lord that, hey, this bloodline may be corrupt. Like, this whole system may be broke. There may be poison in the well of the country that I live in, or greed, or addiction, or how about this, like, generational passive aggressiveness. You can call it out in your parents and uncles and brothers and sisters. You can call it out, and, and they would maybe do the same thing, but you need to know it goes, like the mom and dad that gave it to you, they got it from somewhere too. And it's worked its way down the bloodline into you. How about this? How about um, like the things that you are prone to do, the things that are broke about the way that you relate to other people in the world? You participate with those. You are guilty. You have a guilty conscience for those sins, but you come by those things honestly. And guess what's healthy to name that? To name that there's been corruption in the bloodline ever since. How about this? How about, and this is, this is painful for me, okay? I live in this neighborhood. Do you know that every time I eat a taco on this street, I participate with the sin of gentrification? Every time I enjoy this street. Do you know how many people had to pay the cost of getting run out of here because of property taxes? That they can't afford this neighborhood in here that we all love, and I love it. We live here. But did it come without, like, blood on the hands? Did it come without not thinking about other people who called this neighborhood home for four generations, and now they don't get to live here anymore because we want to drink beer and eat tacos? It's like acknowledging the past sins of people that came before us is not arrogant. It's not pointing and going, man, those, all those people that royally screwed up, they, look, at, look at how much they messed up the system. It's actually incredibly humble to acknowledge the sin that has come before us that we now even sometimes blindly participate in. It's a way more biblically holistic view of sin in the world. Nehemiah repenting 
for the sin of his ancestors. Here's what he's doing, though. He's not just stopping and saying, man, did my ancestors screw up. Guess what he's saying? He's saying, the curses that they deserved, I'll now pay for. I don't deserve for you to show me favor because of how our, the last thousand years have not gone well. He's saying the curses that should have fallen on them now fall on me, and I'm not arguing with you for that, Lord. He's bearing the punishment, get this, for sin that he didn't commit. He's saying it's just of you to punish us for the sin of my ancestors. He's bearing the sins of others and the curses of that sin. He acknowledges it, and he names it. It's so healthy to name not only the sin that you do, but the sin that's been done to you and passed on to you. It's so healthy. David gets at this in the Psalms when he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Like, I didn't stand a chance from the time I was conceived. Sin was passed on to me from generations before. The modern David, John Mayer, says this in... Always in the Blood from his two albums ago, where he's just naming generational sin from mom, dad, and brothers and uncles, and he's saying, man, I I can sit and judge them for all that. Will it wash out in the water, or is it always in the blood? Am I going to participate with it because it just gets passed down? John Mayer reads David often, I guess. But here's what we know. Doing both things, confessing my own personal guilt and my own participation with sin, and naming the sin that has come before me is so healthy. He acknowledges the guilt of the punishment for the sin that he has committed, and he owns the curses for sins that he did not commit. So healthy for Nehemiah to do this. So healthy for Nehemiah to do this in light of what he's going before the Lord to ask him to do. Again, confession of sin, when you feel the weight of your reality being too much to carry, too much to hold, starting with confession is a great, humble place to begin. Because now you're coming to the Lord and saying, Anything you're going to give me, any favor you're going to show me is all of mercy. I don't deserve any of it. It's why we just baptized our baby. We can't save her. There's too much sin in us and in the blood. We can't do it. Jesus, you've got to do it, and it will be a total act of mercy for you to do it. So if that's what he prays, what gives him the confidence of this mercy? What gives him the confidence to confess the sin not only of his own life, but of his ancestors for thousands of years before him? Saying before the Lord, the holy God of heaven who's more powerful than Artaxerxes, he goes before that God and says, I've sinned against you, broken all of your law. My ancestors have sinned against you and broken all of your law. We deserve death. What gives him confidence to go before that God and saying, me and my family and my lineage are this guilty? Well, it's because ultimately, if the first thing we need to see about sin is that it begins with the confession of sin, the second thing that we see about prayer is that prayer ultimately is always grounded on and always stands on the promises of God. After Nehemiah confesses his sin and the sin of his ancestors, Nehemiah then goes on to recount back to the Lord. Like there's quotes. If you see it in your Bible, you saw it on the screen. There's quotes in Nehemiah's prayer. He quotes back to the Lord promises that the Lord made to his people a thousand years before. He's saying back to the Lord that for the last thousand years when the sin of your people was increasing, so did your promises to us. 
He quotes back to God direct quotes that the Lord actually said to his people a thousand years before. Look with me again at verse 8 and 9. This is what he's saying to the Lord. Look, he says, remember, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, this is a thousand years before, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it's a direct quote. He says, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Here's what he's saying to the Lord. Look, Lord, a thousand years ago, you said to Moses that if we disobeyed you and rebelled against you and neglected your promises, you would scatter us and you would send us into captivity. And guess what? You did that. We are in captivity. You came true on your promises, but your promises didn't stop there. Guess what else you said? You promised that if and when we repent to you, you would restore us and you would bring us back home and you would dwell among us. I'm asking you, Lord, to do that now too. There's a major lesson that Nehemiah teaches us here about prayer. Prayer always pleads promises. There's a whole theology of prayer in that one statement. It's the heart of Nehemiah's prayer. A major task for prayer is to take God's promises and to ask him in prayer to come true on them. Lord, bring your promises to pass. He is recounting to the Lord with direct quotes things that the Lord already said he would do. Please understand what Nehemiah is doing. He has the weight of all this hope, the weight of all these promises, the weight of all this fear, the weight of all this sadness about to go before the king and he prays back to the Lord promises that he made a thousand years before. And here's what he's saying to God. I want my reality. I know, Lord, you're outside of time and space, and you don't live in a linear way that we do. You're transcendent. But I'm asking God, I want my reality to look like the promises that you made a thousand years ago. Would you bring the reality of your promises and collide them with my finite reality now? That's prayer. Bringing alignment to the realities. The reality of God and the reality of self. Lord, I want my reality to look more like your reality and the reality that you've promised. That's the place he gets his confidence from. I know it sounds counterintuitive that that prayer of God come true on your promises would actually breed confidence for him. It's why he's able to confess the sins of a thousand prior years to the Lord. Here's what he's saying. God, You've never broken a promise. Guess what one of them was? The promise to discipline us when we rebelled against you. And guess what? You did that. You were true on your promises to discipline us and send us into captivity when we rebelled against you. But I'm so sure that you don't stop fulfilling your promises. Guess what else you promised us? You promised us that if and when we repent, you will return us home and you will dwell among us there. I'm so confident that you're a God who never breaks his promises that I not only have the confidence to confess sin to you, I have the uttermost confidence to, to go before this king who works for you and ask him to be underneath the rule of your promises to us. Even if this king calls for my head and fires me, even if this king says to get out and, and, and has, has me crucified, I'm acting on, I'm asking you now, God, in light of your promises, because you are a faithful God who never breaks his promises, would you act on them now? I'm so sure that you will always act on your promises, God. I can go before this mighty king and ask him, even if he cuts my head off. 
because I know that ultimately one day you will have the reality of your promises collide with the reality of your people, and I'm just asking you to do it now. There's a confidence to pray the promises of God because here's what is so liberating about knowing the promises of God and then praying them that the Lord would bring them to pass is that now the certainties of your life don't depend on you. The outcomes of your life will only be the outworkings of the Lord's promises to you, even if your circumstances don't go the way that you wish they would have up until this point or don't walking forward. God has never broken a promise to his people and he will not start with you. Nehemiah did not know. Nehemiah could not know how these promises were gonna play out, the ones that he's praying back to God. Lord, would you restore your people, send us back home and restore Jerusalem and come and dwell among us there. He had no idea how they would play out, but he knew God was so faithful to come true on his promises that he had the confidence to go walk before that king and ask him to let him go. Nehemiah knew that God was more mindful to keep his promises than Nehemiah was to breaking the commandments. Yes, I and my father's house have sinned back a thousand years, but our sin doesn't outweigh your faithfulness to your promises. And it's in that place that Nehemiah says, okay, give me favor with this king now. It's too much for me, it's too scary for me, I'm too sad, I'm too afraid, but I'm not afraid to walk in knowing that my sin doesn't disqualify me from coming before you to ask because your mercy, your promise to be merciful to us outweighs my sin. And so because you never, ever fail to come through on your promises, I can walk before this king and ask him to give us favor. Nehemiah knew that the Lord would always come through on his promises. What Nehemiah didn't know is that one day, 500 years later, 500 years after Nehemiah, we're going to see Nehemiah rebuild the wall, we're going to follow his story, but 500 years after Nehemiah, in order for the Lord to come true on his promise to Nehemiah, what Nehemiah says, Lord, restore us to our homeland and come and dwell among us there. That's his promise. Nehemiah had no idea that one day the Lord wouldn't just send a prophet or a cupbearer. One day he would send his son. And this son of God, Jesus, would be the dwelling of God with man. And this son of God, Jesus, who would come to dwell with the people in Jerusalem to come true on the promises that God made to his people thousands of years before would be the ultimate one who would bear the sins for other people, sins he didn't commit. See, like Nehemiah, Jesus would literally bear the weight of sin committed by other people for generations past. Jesus would literally say, the curses that those people that came before me in sin for thousands of years, the curses that they deserve for breaking your law, I now want them to fall on me. Same thing that Nehemiah is doing. The difference between Nehemiah and Jesus, though, is that Nehemiah participated in the corruption and Jesus didn't. This should be on the screen, but here's a great Old Testament passage about this bearing of sin's curse on our behalf is Isaiah 53. Do you have that up there? Isaiah 53, listen to this. It's talking about Jesus and what he would do. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
that Jesus would say, the curses that belong to the people before me, put them on me. This is the Jesus that is the culmination of all of God's promises to you and to me. This is the Jesus that makes all the promises of God come true for us. This is the Jesus who bore your sin and took the curses of sin that he didn't commit. Jesus took the curse of sin that you have participated in and has been passed down to you, the sin that you have done and what sin has done to you. Jesus has borne all the curse. The New Testament says it this way when it comes to the grace of, of this Jesus, that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You can't out Jesus' grace because he's paid for all your sin. He bore the iniquity that you committed and your ancestors. Jesus paid for the sin that was passed down to you and the sin that you have participated with. So where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And Christian, Christian, this is the Jesus you pray to. It's actually this knowledge of Jesus is what woos us, it's what beckons us into prayer. The knowledge that where sin has increased in my life, the grace of Jesus has increased all the more. This is the Jesus who is far above you and you can't understand and you certainly can't tame. This is the Jesus who paid for your sin so that he could hear you when you pray. This is the Jesus who is not understandable by you, but he is knowable by you. He is far above you, but he is near enough to hear you. This is the Jesus who is not only beyond you, but maybe coming after you. So here's my invitation to you this morning. Wherever you are on the spectrum of belief or prayer or caring about it or hating it, I'm just gonna ask you as we close with a couple songs, would you risk something? With all that you're carrying, with all of your grief, with all of your doubt, with all of your anger, with all of your apathy, with all of your sin, with all of your shame, with all of your pride, would you risk not cleaning all that up before you come to this Jesus in prayer? Would you risk speaking to this Jesus that keeps haunting you? The Jesus who paid for sins that he didn't even commit. The Jesus who bore the sin that you've committed and the sin that's been done to you. Would you risk praying to that Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess our need, we confess our inadequacy, we confess our fear, we confess our pride, we confess the generational corruption that has been passed down to us. It wasn't just passed down in the blood, we've now participated in it and we will carry it on, we will pass it on too. We cast ourselves in such need at your mercy that you promise to be a God of steadfast love, the great and awesome and terrible God who is a God of steadfast love, abounding in mercy for those that have sinned against you. Transcendent Jesus, we also trust that you are imminently close to us this morning. Would you lend your ear and turn your eyes to us this morning as we cry out to you. Show us mercy. Show us your intercession for us that we might cry out to you, we pray in your name. Amen.